What freedom has evolved into in 2022 is not necessarily what has been understood over most of, of, of human history. Few Americans realize that this whole idea of of freedom being the ability to do whatever you want is not how Jesus, the New Testament writers, or great philosophers of freedom of, of history define freedom. Like they actually define this as slavery, as bondage. Because when we give into our flesh, over time we end up becoming enslaved by our own desires, particularly our desire to sin. And so what has been what has been understood like like by, by most civilizations throughout history is, is that freedom without self-control, without parameters, without boundaries is a disaster waiting to happen. So just, just being free to do whatever you want is not the way of Jesus, right? It's not, and, and, and besides that, it's not the way to like live a good, healthy, and productive life. So, so to be clear, you know, like, like what, what, what Jesus is, is talking about in, in, in the New Testament, what the writers of, of the New Testament are, are, are talking about what, what the ancient philosophers are talking about is that freedom is this idea of not being run by your flesh or not being like subjected to your flesh, to, to like enslaved to your flesh. That's what freedom is. That's what freedom is in the New Testament. This idea that like you don't have to live that way. Like you don't have to, you don't have to live according to your base desires. You don't have to live, you know, a, a, according to what your flesh wants. You can live in the land of the free. And you can still not be free as long as you're being ran by your desires. Like you can appear free on the outside all you want, but the reality is that you are entrapped, you're enslaved, you, 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 you're not living like the life that Jesus paid for. Hey, we are in a teaching series called The Three Enemies of the Soul. And uh, we have defined those three enemies already in this series as the devil, the flesh, and the world. Uh, today we're in week six of this series, and so we are looking at the second great enemy of our soul, the flesh. And, uh, and so what I want to do is just take a minute and, and define the flesh. I want to make sure we have a sort of a working definition. We're all on the same page. And if you were here last week, uh, then, then you, uh, you, may, you may have seen this. But the flesh, uh, just to get us all on the same page, is the sinful appetite in all of us that feels natural to our bodies and yet is wrong. Right? How many of y'all have ever uh, battled your flesh? Right? Uh, the sinful part in all of us that feels uh, natural uh, to our bodies and yet is wrong. So in other words, it is the base, sort of primal drive in all of us for self-gratification. Right? It is that dark part in our heart that is bent away from God and in the words of 4th century uh, philosopher Augustine is turned in on itself. Right? And so in this series, what, we, what we're doing by, by really calling out this dark part of our heart or the flesh, we're really just naming a part of the human condition that we all have to fight. Right? Like Christian or non-Christian, it doesn't really matter. Like this fight against good and evil or this fight against right and wrong, this inner tug of war, if you will, between our mixed desires, some of which are good and healthy and right and others of which are the exact opposite. You ever felt that inner tug of war between those mixed desires in yourself? This is what the Apostle Paul talks about in, in Romans 8. Romans chapter 8 is one of like the hallmark, one of the classic chapters in the Bible for, for really developing like a biblical framework of, around the flesh. And in Romans 8, uh, Paul uh, acknowledges sort of this, this, this inner battle. 
between our mixed desires. He says this in verse 8. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. In verse 8, those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. Cannot please God. So Paul, again here, he is, he is acknowledging sort of this, this inner tug of war, this, this inner battle, this inner struggle that I think we all feel between our flesh and our spirit. And when we make you know, decisions that are, that are good and right and healthy, we, we sow according to the spirit. But when we sow according to the flesh, like, like, like we are making decisions that can be highly destructive to our soul. And I think, I think that in, in a series like this, where we're just calling out and naming the three enemies as the devil, the flesh, and the world, you know, it can, I think maybe at times be a little easier to, to get, get behind this idea that the devil is our enemy. You know, it's, it, it, once you get to a place of, of, of believing that he's real, uh, which can be a hurdle for some people, uh, I, I think acknowledging that he is our enemy or the enemy of our soul is maybe a little bit easier to do than it can be uh, when we start to think about our flesh as, as our enemy. Now, I think, I think we can understand, you know, that the flesh can work against us, whether that's like goals or, you know, dieting or, or like, hey, I'm not going to eat that, that cookie. Like, oh, my flesh just gave into my flesh. But that's one thing. But when it, when it comes down to like, like understanding our flesh as an enemy of our soul, particularly, I think that that can be a little more difficult for us to understand. And so I would say that the, that the flesh is an enemy of our soul in this way, uh, if, if you want to look at this on the screen. Every time we sow to the flesh, we feed the animalistic part of us. As it grows, it takes more control over our freedom, that's a key word right there, and attempts to eat us from the inside. The more people indulge their flesh, the more it takes over their whole being. Okay, so, so this, this, is, this is more than just um, you know, trying to, uh, trying to stay away from certain foods or trying not to do certain things, right? There is like a, a, a dark sort of underbelly to all of this. There's, there's like a, an insidious evil associated with like the, the corrupted part of, of, our, of our nature, right? Our flesh. Uh, and, and what happens, you know, is, is that as we give into it, as, as we sow into the flesh, this thing grows, and it grows, and it grows, and eventually what it does is it takes over control of our freedom. And so what happens, I think, a lot of times is, is when we do give into our flesh, we make conscious, conscious decisions, like, and we think, well, it, basically, it, I am choosing to do this, or I am choosing to do that. Like, I am choosing out of my place of, of free choice or, or freedom to, to sow into my flesh. But what happens is over time, uh, that freedom uh, starts to go away to, to, to where it, it turns into a situation where now you're just, uh, you're, you're just obeying your flesh. Like now you're just, your flesh is actually telling you what to do. So the more you give into it, the more the flesh grows and it, and it takes control away from you or freedom away from you to where you and I become enslaved by our very desires. And so, so this is what happens. So it grows and then it takes control of our freedom. So in America especially, right, we are known to boast about freedom as the ultimate good. We, we do this all the time. Like, this is one of the things Americans are known for. In fact, in a, uh, 
You know, in a, in a, in a study, a uh, wide-ranging study uh, about our nation, a group of sociologists discovered that for, for many Americans, or for most Americans, freedom is their most important value. I think there's a lot of you in here who would agree, like you would, you would acknowledge like freedom, if you were to lay out your values, freedom's up there at the top. So, so for most Americans, th- this, is, this is what they value most. So things like, you know, uh, freedom of, of, of religion, freedom of speech, you know, freedom to, to own property, freedom to, uh, to choose, uh, the right to bear arms, the right to vote, you know, the list just goes on and on and on and on. And, and so the primary value for Americans is is freedom, and yet what I think is so interesting is that for a free people, or or a, a, a yeah a free nation, there's just something about this freedom that seems to have gone terribly wrong. Like like think about it with me, like for, for a moment here, like for a free people, for a free nation, you know, land of the free, home of the brave, for for a free people, uh, how many y'all know that there is like widespread addiction in our in our country? Like, as is, like, compulsive shopping, as is debt, as is, you know, financial fraud, as is, like, uh, you know, like, things like, like obesity and alcoholism, and the list goes on and on and on of things that, that, like, we have become enslaved to and given ourselves over to. Anything that would require long-term fidelity, like marriage or, or two-parent families, uh, is, is currently in decline, right? Uh, I, I mean, and so I, I would say that, it, that, it, that there, there is, uh, that, that is not a stretch, right? It's not a stretch to say that for many people in their pursuit of freedom, they have found the exact opposite, right? They have found the exact opposite. And because the truth is, is that what much of the world calls freedom, the way of Jesus calls slavery. And for as good as, as freedom can be, right? Uh, and, and I mean, don't get me wrong, it can be really, really good. There are some, some problems with it. There are some notable problems with it, namely that most people in the West assume freedom to mean that we can now just do whatever we want. That's the problem. And, and that's not what freedom is. That's, that's not freedom at all. In fact, what happens is it, it, it actually enslaves us. It, we, actually, we actually become, become uh, c- controlled by these things. It creates, the, you know, the, the, the choosing to just do whatever you want and living according to your desires, those base primal instincts, it, it, it creates a prison for people who live that way. And we can, we can kind of trace this back. I think a lot of us would assume that, you know, um, the problems around, around freedom began in the 1960s with things like, like Foucault and um, uh, uh, Woodstock, you know, the sexual revolution, all that, all that stuff. But according to uh, Patrick Deenan, who is a constitutional law professor from Notre Dame, in his book, Why Liberalism Failed, which is a, uh, a conservative book, but it's been recognized by, by people like President Obama. So, I mean, it, it's one that's been, uh, I think, appreciated by both sides of, of, of the aisle. He says uh, in this book that the problems around freedom didn't start in the 1960s, but rather in the, ni- in the 1760s with the Enlightenment, the Founding Fathers, and the U.S. Constitution. He mentioned uh, that, that these were, and I quote, an attempt to make a whole new kind of human based on a new definition of freedom. This new definition of freedom is both crude and common. Freedom is the ability to do whatever you want. And so, you know, I, I think that this is, this is really interesting to look at here. That, that for, you know, really all of, 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 of the last couple thousand years, if not more, other than maybe the last 250 years, there's been an understanding 
like an agreed upon understanding of what it meant to be free. And that that, that entire definition has, 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 has radically changed over the last 250 years. Now, I, I don't know, I think it's possible that the idea that the founding fathers had around freedom is not what freedom has evolved into today. I think that that's, that's totally true and, and, and possible, at least. But, but whatever the case, I think we all can, can appreciate the fact that like, what freedom has evolved into in 2022 is not necessarily what has been understood over mo- most of, of, of human history. Few Americans realize that this whole idea of, uh, of freedom being the ability to do whatever you want is not how Jesus, the New Testament writers, or great philosophers of, freedom, of, of history define freedom. Like, they actually define this as slavery, as bondage. Because when we give into our flesh, over time we end up becoming enslaved by our own desires, particularly our desire to sin. And so, what has, been, what has been understood like, like by, by most civilizations throughout history is, is that freedom without self-control is a disaster waiting to happen. Like, we get this, don't we? Like, like this, is, this is kind of where that, that whole saying even, even comes from, that if you give them an inch, they'll take a mile. Like, like freedom without self-control, without parameters, without boundaries is a disaster waiting to happen. So just, just being free to do whatever you want is not the way of Jesus, right? It's not, and, and, and besides that, it's not the way to like live a good, healthy, and productive life. And so, so, so to be clear, you know, like, like what, what, what Jesus is, is talking about in, in, in the New Testament, what the writers of, of the New Testament are, are, are talking about, what, what the ancient philosophers are talking about is that freedom is this idea of not being run by your flesh or not being like subjected to your flesh to to, like enslaved to your flesh. That's what freedom is. That's what freedom is in the New Testament, this idea that like you don't have to live that way. Like you don't have to, you don't have to live according to your base desires. You don't have to live, you know, a, a, according to what your flesh wants. And so listen to me this morning. Like, like wherever you're at, like you can live in the land of the free and you can still not be free as long as you're being ran by your desires. You, you understand that? Like you can appear free on the outside all you want, but the reality is, is that you are entrapped, you're enslaved, you, 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 you're not living like the life that Jesus paid for, for you. And so in, in, in the scriptures, there are a few go-to passages in the Bible for a biblical theology on the flesh. I mentioned Romans 8. Uh, there's also 2 Peter chapter 2, which is a great chapter to read about on, on the flesh. But Galatians 5 is, is maybe the hallmark passage uh, for developing a biblical theology around the flesh. I want us to look at Galatians 5 this morning because when we look at it, I think what we get is a compelling alternate vision of freedom that is entirely different than that of our Western world. And so in context here in Galatians 5, if, if you want to navigate there, or I'll have the, the scriptures on the screen. Paul is writing uh, here in Galatians 5 to a group of churches in the region of Galatia and he's just finished telling a, a story about a, a well-known slave from the Old Testament named Hagar who is, who is set free but then doesn't know what to do with her freedom, basically. And so he, he, you turn the page to Galatians 5, and this is, this is how he begins. He says in Galatians 5.1, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and, then and do not let yourselves be burdened again and again by a yoke of slavery. Now, like at first glance, when you, when you read a scripture like this, it reads like something a modern, a modern American would say. 
You know, like, hey, like, stay free. Like, like don't, don't let them tell you what to do. You know, like, like you know, don't return back to slavery, man. Like, like, like freedom. But if you keep reading in Galatians 5, you quickly realize that Paul did not mean what most of us mean when it comes to freedom. You go down to Galatians 5.13a, and he says, he says this. He says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but, don't, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. There it is right there. Right? You, were, you were called to be free, but don't use your freedom to indulge the, f- the flesh. That's an entirely upside-down alternate message than, than what all of, uh, at least the West, Western society, believes about freedom. Like, like most of us believe that, that like, or, or most people believe that, that we, are, we are free to indulge our flesh, that that's exactly how we should live. So what Paul is saying here is, is like, you're free, but don't just go and do whatever you want. In other words, he's saying don't use this freedom that you now have from Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to indulge, to eat, to feed, to give your appetite to, to satisfy your primal desires, to indulge your flesh. How many of y'all know that when it comes to freedom, that freedom is something that is really easy to abuse? Right? You ever, you ever like, had this happen? Like Maybe with, with like, like your kids, you give them some freedom and they, they just seem to have an ability to, to abuse the freedom. Maybe it's something with like their, their devices or you know, phone or whatever it is. And you're like, yeah, I, that wasn't really what I meant by you know, you, uh, you know, now, now being given this or whatever. Like it happens all the time. Like we are known to do this. Like we uh, abusing our freedom. Like that's, that's something that we do. Philosophers argue uh, that human beings are the only creatures that have what is called uh, uh, self-determining freedom. Self-determining freedom. So what they mean by this is that unlike the animals, uh, we don't just run on, primal, uh, on our primal evolutionary drives. Like, like we have drives like that, but we also have the capacity, what, what they're saying is it, we also have the capacity to override any and all desires that do not lead to life but actually lead to death. So, in other words, we can choose, because of self-determining freedom, we can choose to not indulge the flesh. Well, that, that, that's a big distinction from those, uh, you know, in the animal kingdom, right? They, they live on, like, their base primal desires. They see something, they want, they go, and they get it. Like, like, like what, 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 you know, philosophers have understood about human beings is there's something different about us where we can, we can live in a world where we possess those base primal desires, but we can also choose to not indulge them. We can choose to not like, be held captive to them. We can choose to override those desires to pursue something that is better. And, this, and, and so, so Paul is like really getting at that here in Galatians 5 where he says, hey, 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 don't indulge the flesh. Like, don't do it. Like, he's saying that because it's actually something you can do. Like, he's saying this to us to not indulge it because, because it's actually possible for us to not indulge the flesh. And this is what he says in, in, in the second half of 13 through 15. He says, rather, so don't indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. For the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, to love your neighbor as yourself. It says in 15, if you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. Now, this is a really interesting direction for Paul to go in here in Galatians 5 because at first glance, it almost feels like, like a tangent, like it has nothing to do with, with the flesh and, and freedom and all those things. It feels like he's going into this, like, this, this, this aside about, uh, about love all of a sudden, but when you read what's really going on here, 
it's actually not a tangent at all. It's this highly intentional direction that Paul heads in. Uh, what can make this confusing when you read these scriptures is, 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 is that Paul uh, moves from, you know, don't indulge the flesh to, to like love, right? And it can be a little bit confusing because we often associate love with, with just like sexuality or lust or desire or consumption of some sort. But love as defined by Jesus and defined by Paul here, the writers of the New Testament, is a different kind of phenomenon. Love is entirely different. It's, it's not animalistic. It's not selfish, right? It's not self-seeking. The Greek word that Paul uses here for love in Galatians 5 wasn't the word eros, which is where we get the word erotic, like it was the word agape, and a different, different type of word for love here. Agape love is this, if you're taking notes, it's a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own, no matter the cost. So, so Paul is saying, like, hey, don't indulge the flesh. Rather, like, like, love someone. Serve one another humbly in love, in agape love. Agape love your neighbor as yourself. And so this kind of love, this, this, this different spin on love, right, not animalistic, not selfish, not self-seeking, not just based on like sexual desire, but, but different, like it's compa- a compassionate commitment to delight in the soul of another and to will that person's good ahead of your own no matter the cost. So this, this kind of love is not based on a feeling, right? It's not based on emotion, but it is an act of the will. So, so what Paul's getting at here is he's saying again through like self-determining freedom that like, like you don't have to give in to the desires of your flesh. In fact, you can choose to override your flesh to pursue something that's far greater, far better, far more healthy for you. And one of the ways we do this is by, is by willing into action like our love for other people and not in, in some sort of weird, strange way. That, that, that again feeds our animalistic based primal desires, but a different kind of love, a new spin on love where we are actually preferring other people's needs above our own needs. This kind of love is something that you can command yourself to do. You can command yourself to do it. It's something you can, you can go out and do. Prefer the needs of someone else above your own. It's an act of the will to go out and to put the good of another person above your own, even if it comes at a great cost or great sacrifice to you, right? It's something you can choose to do. Now, the problem with all of this and what Paul's talking about here is that your flesh and my flesh does not want to do this, right? Like, we just don't. Like, our, like, like this, this part of our heart that is dark, that is bent away from God, like, it does not want to prefer the needs of someone else above like our own needs. It doesn't want to sacrifice for the good of another person. It's not what it wants to do at all. And so we feel this like com- competitiveness between our internal desires, those to do good and those to just sort of do whatever we want. And so Paul's point here is this, if, if you're taking notes, is that our flesh, our flesh is anti-love. That, that's what he is communicating here in Galatians 5. That's why we fight the flesh. That's why we don't just indulge the flesh whenever we want and do, and do just anything that, that, uh, that, that may feel good. He says because the flesh is actually anti-love. So don't indulge it. The flesh runs off, off our animalistic drives for self-gratification and survival. This is not agape love. When we're in the flesh, basically, we are out of love. That's, that's how you can understand it. 
That's because love, as we just defined here, is hard work and it's full of pain as well as joy. Right? The flesh, on the other hand, is lazy. It's self-indulgent. It just wants to feel good in the moment. So the flesh is the antithesis of love, right? It is the polar opposite. And that's why we are, we are instructed here to not be people who just live according to the flesh. Paul tells us how we should live. He goes on in verse 16 and he says this, so don't indulge the flesh, rather serve one another humbly in love. So I say, in verse 16, so I say walk by the Spirit. So on the other hand, walk by the Spirit. Don't walk in the flesh, right? And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, okay? So you are not to do whatever you want. Uh, you hear that? They are not, or they are in conflict with each other, so you are not to do whatever you want. What Paul tells us here is not what our culture tells us, right? Culture heavily encourages us to do whatever we want. Paul's message here is the exact opposite. And he, and he describes two categories of desire here, right? He, he describes the flesh and then he describes the spirit, Right? These two categories of, of desire that are, that are in conflict with each other. And if the flesh, as we've, as we've defined now for two weeks, is our shallow, animalistic drive for pleasure, then the spirit is, is something different. Right? The spirit is our higher and even deeper desires for love and for goodness. And I think what he's saying here is that, you know, whichever set of desire we give into is going to shape the trajectory of our soul. So like there's these desires that are in conflict and whichever one you give yourself over to, it will shape the trajectory of your life. And so be careful, right, is what he's saying. He's saying don't, don't give yourself over to your flesh. Like, like, like feed your spirit. Walk in the spirit. Give yourselves over to the spirit. And he goes on and he tells us what it will look like if we are people who give ourselves over to the flesh or to the spirit. He says here's the trajectory of your life. In Galatians 5.19, he says, the trajectory of your life, if you give yourselves over to the flesh, is this. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, and debauchery. There's a word. I think we should start bringing that word debauchery back into like, like common everyday language. He says in verse 20, the acts of the flesh are idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, just in case, in case you were wondering, uh, and, and the like, and the like. He says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now I read these, these, these two scriptures and it reads just like the morning news, doesn't it? Pretty much. And what Paul is saying here is like if you live by the flesh, if you sow into the flesh, then you're, you're going to reap um, something other than the life that, that, that Jesus has for you. You'll reap something other than the life that he bled and died for you to have. And, and, and like that's your choice, right? That's, that's, that's my choice. We can be people who sow according to the flesh or we can sow according to the spirit. This is what he says if it happens if, if we live a life by the spirit in, in verse 22. He says, but the fruit of the spirit. Right? So we saw the fruit of the flesh. He says the fruit of the Spirit is different. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Or he uses the word forbearance there. Same, same idea for patience. 
He says, against such things there is no law. So this is the kind of fruit that's grown in the soil of the Spirit, right? And against such things there is no law. And when people walk in the Spirit, this is the kind of people that they become. Loving, joyful, unanxious, unhurried, helpful, deeply uh, good souls. It's the kind of life I pray you know, for myself. It's the kind of life I pray for my, my family, for my kids, like, like that we would be people like this. It's the kind of life I pray for, for you, you know, that we would be people like this who live according to the Spirit and it produces this kind of fruit in us. Paul then goes on and he ends with this summary in verses 24 and 25. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, he says, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Okay? So Paul's not messing around here at all, right? Like, like he's telling us that our flesh is not something to be managed or, or just sort of kept in check, but that it is, it is something that we launch a military campaign to kill. Like we crucify this thing. We don't just, we don't just let it sort of like hover around and, 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 and like indulge it every once in a while and just be cool that it's sort of there. Like it says, no, 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 no. Understand what it has the power to do. Understand what, what it is capable of and, and, and don't underestimate it. And don't let it just, just, just sit there sort of in the shadows waiting to pounce. Like kill it, get rid of it. Don't let it live. Verse 24, right, he says, if you belong to Christ, Jesus, we've crucified the flesh, or if we belong to Jesus, then we are people who are actively putting our flesh to death. Actively. And this is what Jesus tells us to do if we want to come and follow him, right? We talked about that scripture last week. If we want to come and follow him, he says, this is what you got to do. You got to deny yourselves. You got to take up your cross, and then you got to come and follow me. Well, what does that I mean? What does that mean, right? That's this picture of crucifixion. Like to come after Jesus, there's this self-denial. That's, that's completely backwards and upside down to the message of culture. Like where, where, where we are not taught culturally to, to deny ourselves. Like that, that would be viewed as like repressive, right? And, 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 and really wrong in, 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 you know, to, to, to a lot of people. The way of Jesus is upside down. He's like, no, 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 no. It's not about giving yourself over or giving into anything and everything you want. He says, you want to come after me? Like, it's about denying what you want most. It's about taking up your cross, joining with me on the cross, crucifying ourselves, and, uh, and, and, and then letting the desires that God has for us be the things that actually live out, that live on. And so we are to crucify our flesh. The question becomes like, well, how do we do that, right? Like, how do we actually crucify the flesh? I think that that's, that's like an honest question that, you know, I would be asking uh, or, or do ask, and, and I'm sure it's a question like we all ask. So I, maybe I've, I've convinced you to the point that like, yeah, the flesh is definitely something to be like aware of and to not just indulge in and something we need to crucify. The question is, well, how do we actually do this? It's, it, it's somewhat simple in explanation, way more difficult in terms of, of walking it out. The simple explanation is that the way we crucify the flesh is that we live by the Spirit, okay? You live by the Spirit. These, these, these uh, few scriptures, you see really four verbs 
sort of painting a picture, a crystal clear word picture of, of walking in or with in relationship to the Spirit of God. Like walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, live in the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, right? Is this idea, and, and it's creating this picture for us of, of relationship, of proximity to, intimacy with God. And Walking in the Spirit or living by the Spirit, this is key to how we crucify the flesh or how we die to the flesh, right, is learning how to walk like this. If you're taking uh, notes this morning, I want you to catch this, this really important thought that the way we fight the flesh and win is not through willpower but through the Spirit's power, okay? It's really important to understand that. Like the way we fight the flesh and win is not through willpower but through the Spirit's power, so Paul urges us here, right, not to, not to white-knuckle it, you know, not to slap our faces, you know, whatever it takes, not to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and just, like, figure it out, or to flex the willpower muscles and, like, say no to drugs or, whatever, you know, whatever it is. Like, just stop doing that. That's not what Paul's doing here. He says instead, like, it's real simple, live by the Spirit. Be people who live by the Spirit. Now, I'm going to explain that in a minute, but there is, it's important to note that there's nothing like inherently wrong with willpower other than it can kind of produce some performance mentality in us where we feel like we have to effort our way, but there's really nothing inherently wrong with willpower. Like, like, like Paul's not even necessarily down on willpower, um, for, but you know, from a spiritual formation perspective like, like, or discipleship perspective, uh, one of the things that should grow as you follow Jesus over a lifetime is your willpower muscle, right? Your ability to say no to the flesh and, and your, your ability to say yes to the things of God. Like that should happen over a lifetime of following Jesus. So things that were very difficult for you early on, you know, when, when you kind of first came to faith or in the first few years, like that were very, very, very difficult to, to say no to, as you mature in Christ and as you follow him, they should become a whole lot more easier to, 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 uh, to avoid or to say no or to resist. So our capacity to choose the good should grow and expand with each passing year as we're following Jesus. Our willpower should become stronger over time in its ability to resist sin. Now, most of us aren't here yet, right? Like most of us don't just have like, like perfected willpower, right? And that's, and that's, the, that's the problem. Like, like, like that's really the end goal. That's what we're trying to, trying to chase, right? That, that we will have, you know, uh, those willpower muscles strengthened over a lifetime of following Jesus. The problem with willpower, as you know, is that it just doesn't work all the time. It just doesn't, just doesn't always work. So it's not wrong to, like, desire to, like, resist things and to, like, you know, kind of put some habits in, 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 your, you know, in your life, you know, th that'll help you sort of resist certain things. But the problem with willpower is that it just doesn't work at least most of the time. It's great when it works, but it just doesn't work most of the time. Willpower doesn't work on your amygdala. You understand what that, what that means in, in your brain, right? It, it doesn't work on any sense of trauma whatsoever. So it's, it, willpower is one thing when it's up against like, like a second cookie that you want, but willpower up against triggered trauma is entirely different. Willpower up against an addiction or versus a father wound or a mother wound, it just doesn't stand a chance at all. So like on these, on these like, like uh, you know, issues that we deal with that, that, you know, operate kind of in the frontal cortex, you know, like things like, like just resisting some, some level of food or, or, or you know, 
you know, getting yourselves out of bed to like, you know, go and run and work out or whatever, that's, that's one thing. But the, the areas like associated to our trauma that, that, that trigger our, our fight or flight in the amygdala, like it, that, that's something that you cannot just willpower your way through that. Like you're no match for these types of issues. And this is why we don't overcome the flesh with willpower, but we do with the Spirit's power. Meaning, as followers of Jesus, we have access to a power that is beyond us. That we oftentimes don't take full advantage of. We have the capacity, uh, Scripture teaches us, to open our mind and our body to the power of God, also known as the Spirit of God, who not only exists like out there somewhere, but exists inside us. And for the Spirit of God to give us the power to overcome the flesh, we have to walk in that Spirit. We have to have proximity to it. The Spirit has the power to do what willpower cannot do. So the question then becomes, how do we actually do this? So how do we crucify the flesh? We walk in the Spirit. Well, then that creates another question. Well, like, how do we walk in the Spirit, right? Okay, so how do we actually do this? We walk in the Spirit through uh, the practices of Jesus, the practices of Jesus, or through spiritual disciplines. This is how we walk in the Spirit. The practices of Jesus are how we actually fight the devil, the flesh, and the world, right? Like, we, it's one thing to, igno- to acknowledge or identify who our enemy is, but once you identify who your enemy is, you have to actually have strategy on how to defend or how to fight against, and the practices of Jesus or spiritual disciplines are how the Christian is meant to fight the enemy, the devil, the flesh, and the world. The practices of Jesus are effectively counter habits to those of our flesh. They are habits based on the life and teaching of Jesus that resist the habits of our flesh. Okay, so every time, this is important, every time you, you practice a habit of Jesus, your spirit gets a little stronger and your flesh gets a little weaker. That's, that's how it works, right? Every time you practice a habit of Jesus, that's what that's what happens. And so I want to highlight two really important spiritual practices, practices that, I think, uh, that I think matter in, in terms of how they pertain to our flesh. Now, there's many practices of Jesus that you could, um, you know, you could list out here because they all probably work in helping us fight the flesh. But there's two special, especially uh, when it comes to fighting the flesh and developing like a strategy, a, a game plan against them. Uh, there's two that I think work especially well. Number one is fasting. It's fasting. One of the practices of Jesus. Now, I know, I just brought up a topic that like everybody just like felt like, oh great, here we go, you know. Um, I I get it, I feel it every January when we do the 21 days of prayer and fasting. It's coming back up, by the way, so start to prepare yourself. But uh, I know, I get it, I understand like, like that this is not especially fun. I don't think that there is another practice of Jesus that is more foreign or more neglected in the modern Western church than fasting. I, 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 I mean, would you maybe agree with that? I don't think, it's just sort of, sort of foreign to us now. It, and yet fasting has been one of the core practices of the way of Jesus since the beginning. For hundreds of years, you know, the church would fast twice a week, every Wednesday and every Friday. That was just what you did if you were a Christian. It was just the way of life. In the fourth century, when the church developed the practice of Lent, if you grew up in like mainline church, you, you remember following Lent, when the church developed the practice of Lent, it was originally a fast that was very similar to Islam's Ramadan. As a lead up to Easter, followers of Jesus would 
would wake up in the morning and they would go without food until sundown for 40 days every single year. That's what they would do. Now, here's the reason why. There's part of the reason for why, if, if you're taking notes. Fasting is a practice by which you deny your body food in an attempt to starve your flesh. That's what this is, right? You, you deny your body food so that you can starve your flesh. So that, th- th- this, this idea of, of self-denial, like going without, not just giving yourself over to whatever you want, it's, it's, it's putting your flesh in check. Just, just to make sure we're, we're clear this morning, I want you to understand that your body isn't, like, isn't necessarily evil, but just like the rest of your soul, it, it is corrupted by evil, right? And it has to be held in check. It has to be held in check. As a result of, of like this, this corruption due to sin, your body often works against you in your fight against the flesh. Like, like it just does. Like it, it, it just isn't always like your ally in this fight and in this battle. Your body tends to work against you, perhaps via, you know, your, your sex drive or your fight or flight instinct or other survival kind of instincts that exist. Are oftentimes what we find is that our body just is working against us in this fight to deny these, these complex desires, these competing desires that exist within us. Um, if you're taking notes, look at this with me. In your fight with the flesh, fasting is a way to turn your body from an adversary into an ally, okay? That's, that's, what, you, that's what you're doing. So uh, the way our body, like, actively works against us by, like, by screaming for what it desires, we're actually bringing it under, like, some sort of subjection. We're telling it no. Like, like you will not always get what you want. Like, like I will not just feed all of, of your desires, and, and where it has been an adversary many times just screaming for it to get uh, its desires satisfied, we, we say no to it so that it can start to help us in our fight against the flesh and be an ally. Richard Foster talks about it this way. He says, more than any other discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. It's really, really, really good. That's why we do this. Now, every time fasting comes up around here, every year in January, like I always get, I always get the attitudes. I always get the, I, I, I mean, I just do. Like I just do. And some of it's cute and funny and some of it's real. Like some of it's actually real. Like some of you just, some of it's passive aggressive. Like, and it's, but it's real. Some of you just blatantly like decide you're not gonna do it. Like, like I, yeah, I'm, not, I'm never doing that. Like that's, that's dumb. And you know, fine, like that's your choice. I'm not here, I'm not, I can't force you to do anything. But all I can do is put opportunities in front of you that, that, that will help you in your fight against like, the second great enemy of your soul. And that's, that's what fasting does, right? If, if, if you're taking notes, like fasting trains our bodies to not get what they want. That's what it does. That's, why we, that's part of why we fast. That's part of why this is a, like a, a vital uh, uh, spiritual discipline, practice of Jesus. We train our bodies to not get what they want at least all the time. And this is why fasting, when done rightly, can be a pathway to freedom for many, many, many people. If you think about the story, like I mentioned last week, of Jesus in the, in the wilderness facing the devil, you know, he, he has been fasting for 40 days. And we often think that the reason why the devil comes to him is because he's been fasting for 40 days, so he, he must now be weak. He must be in a weakened state where he's more vulnerable, right? And, and, and maybe in, in some, some level of uh, that's, that's true, at least as it pertains to like the physical or the flesh or the, the body. But what's gone on over 40 days is he's actually become incredibly strengthened. He is strengthened in a way that, that like uh, far surpasses any kind of strength his body could have. 
in that moment to try to get him past that level of temptation. His spirit, man, is strong. It's vibrant. Its muscles are, are, are flexed, right? He, I mean, he is, he is strong in that moment so that when he is tempted, he responds with Scripture. He, he, he replies to the devil, nope, that's not true, actually. This is what Scripture says. And so we often think of, like, of, of, of fasting as, as this, this way of, like, like it, you know, like, like this weakened state of, of, of our body, and there is a truth to that, but the, the, what it does for our spirit man is something like you can't, you can't uh, uh, take for granted or underestimate. Like it strengthens us in our fight against the devil and the flesh, and it's one of the ways, uh, one of the ways we walk in the spirit. So that's good, that's good stuff right there. Okay. The second practice of Jesus that I just, uh, I'm gonna give to you fast, and then we'll close, is uh, confession. So you have fasting, and then you have confession, okay? James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other uh, so that you may be healed. Prayer of a righteous man uh, is powerful and effective, or in the King James, availeth much, right? So there is a a genuine freedom James is talking about here that happens or that comes when you name your sin in the presence of a friend, in the presence of a loving friend or loving community, in the presence of like a life group or an intimate setting. I think for us Westerners in the Protestant church, this, this uh, branch of Christianity, perhaps the second most neglected practice of Jesus is confession. You got fasting and you got confession, probably two of the most neglected practices of Jesus uh, in the Protestant uh, Western church. Much of the reason for this becoming so neglected is really due to how confession was abused by the Catholic church in the Middle Ages. If you know anything about that, uh, the Catholic church turned confession into a private sort of therapeutic thing between you and a priest, not between you and, and uh, you know, your community of people that you were following Jesus with. Uh, there was a screen with a shield, to shield your identity, Right? And uh, it essentially functioned as a get-out-of-jail-free card uh, for that particular sin. In, in its worst form through the Middle Ages, um, confession was a means of spiritual abuse for fundraising <laughs> for a corrupt clergy, right? I, I mean, that, that, so, so you can imagine why um, Martin Luther and the Reformers had little value for it, like in the 1500s, right, when he, Martin Luther nailed the, the 90, 99 Theses to the door of the uh, Wickenburg Church. So, like, all, all the stuff going on, like, the church changes and goes in a different direction, and, and one of the practices of the way of Jesus that gets left behind in many ways is this idea of, of confession. And so what has been left of the practice of confession, you know, in, in maybe our stream of Christianity is usually uh, around communion, where people say sorry to God in their minds before they take the bread and the juice, Right? The problem with this way of practicing confession is that it's, it's entirely private. There's nothing public about it. If you're taking notes this morning, for, for confession to produce freedom, it must drag our sins into the light, not keep them hidden in the dark. So there's something really beautiful about confession. Now, we don't just, like, we don't just like get up on the, on, uh, you know, on the stage and like hand you the mic and you just tell everybody, like, you know, Here, here's my deepest, darkest stuff. No, no, no. But like there is this, there's something about like, like, like not letting the flesh win by being allowed to remain hidden and dark and quiet. Bonhoeffer, who was a, a German theologian during uh, World War II, he, 
He uh, actively resisted the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, uh, actually died for his resistance to Hitler. Um, he wrote these words. He said, sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. So this is just upside down. Like this practice of Jesus is just upside down where like, you know, we, we come to church and, and you know, we, we definitely like to wear like masks or put on a facade. Like, like we're all doing fine. We're all good. We don't struggle with sin. Oh, you struggle? I, oh, yeah, oh, wow. What's that like? Like, you know, like we don't, I mean, that's kind of like how we live. But, but the truth is that we all struggle and our flesh does get the better of us. And one of the ways we actively fight back against the flesh is through this practice of confession bringing things into the light so that they cannot stay hidden and continue to destroy us from the inside out. Again, if you're taking notes, the way we fight and overcome our flesh isn't through willpower, but through the Spirit's power, and we get access to that power via the practices of Jesus. Okay? Really, you gotta read that again. The way we fight and over the, overcome the flesh isn't through willpower, but through the Spirit's power, okay? And the way we get access to that power is via the practices of of Jesus. Now, fasting and confession are just two especially helpful practices in our war against the flesh, but there are many others you can experiment with, like generosity. Do you think there's anything else that could help you fight the flesh more than being a generous person with your finances to help other people in need? Anything? Anything? So the, one of the practices of Jesus, radical generosity, prayer, scripture reading, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on and on, but this is how we, we build up in us a power to really fight the flesh and to win. The key is to find ways of living in reliance on the Spirit's presence and power in your ordinary life. So, we all face a war with the flesh. It's inescapable. But it doesn't have to be a tug of war where both sides are equally matched and no matter how hard you fight, victory never really feels like a realistic outcome. And this, is, this is kind of, I think, where a lot of Christians find themselves you know, in, in this inner tug of war, this, this, this tug of war between like mixed desires of like wanting the things of God, but also wanting the things of the flesh. We, we feel this, like they're, like they're equally matched and we're not always sure each day which one's gonna win. Like, like, like I hope I can get through the day like still as like a man of God. <laughs> or I hope I can get through the day like without like doing something I shouldn't do. And, and yet I, I would tell you that like, it doesn't have to be this way. Like it doesn't have to be this way where the flesh is so prominent in our life as, as something that we are enslaved to or held captive by or something that we are obligated to obey. We can be people who walk by the Spirit, who live by the Spirit by incorporating into our lives the practices of Jesus, the spiritual disciplines of Jesus that radically change our life so that we are truly free. He who the Son has set free is free indeed. Right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty. And so what I want for you is not just a definition of freedom that sort of mirrors uh, what is true in you know, secular pop popular culture. I want a freedom for you that is defined by Jesus and the writers of the New Testament. 
a freedom where you are not obligated to, to satisfy your flesh or to obey its desires and commands. And so we've got to guard against the fleshly desires which wage war against our soul, Scripture talks about, right? And we do this through the practices of Jesus. Now, a simple practical takeaway for you today is this idea that we have to run every habit, every thought, every relationship, everything through this simple grid. Let me just show you these two questions. This simple grid. Does this sow to my flesh or my spirit? Like a real simple grid right here. You can take a picture of this. Every, every habit, every thought, every relationship, everything through this grid. Does it sow to my flesh or does it sow to my spirit? And then will this make me more enslaved or will it make me more free? I mean, that's how you start to put yourself on a journey or on a path towards actually walking away from your flesh and walking by the Spirit. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, Paul really is ending this whole uh, section of Scripture from Galatians 5 into the first part of Galatians 6. Uh, and he tells us these, these, these in, re- really interesting words. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. We do not give up. Now, I think, I think a lot of people can like lift this scripture and, and start to assume that Paul is, is, is encouraging us here to not give up in life or, or to not quit like a really hard job or to keep following our dreams no matter how difficult it may get. But that's not really what's going on here. Like in context, what this verse means, the doing good here is referring to this fight against our flesh. So, so let us not become weary in doing good. Let's not become weary in fighting our flesh, right? Let's not become weary in this battle between these complex inner desires that want to be fed. Don't give up. For at the proper time, right, you will reap a harvest. So we're not to, he tells us we're not to give up in this struggle to get free from our fleshly desires because there is, there is a time, there is a moment, there is, there's going to be a time in your life where you will reap a harvest if you don't give up. Right? And this, this is something that's really important for you to understand because there may be things associated with your flesh that have just continued to be difficult time after time after time, you know, year after year after year. And you're like, man, is this thing ever going to get better? Is it ever going to improve? Am I going to always have this thing? But Paul is saying, hey, you might, you, you, might, you might feel that way, but don't grow weary, right, in this struggle, in this fight, in this battle, in, in, in doing good in fighting your flesh because there's going to come a moment and it might be five years from now, it might be 10 years from now, it might be further on down the road, but if you keep your eyes on Jesus and have this vision of what real freedom is, there's going to come a moment where you will reap a harvest in your life if you don't give up. If you don't give up. This harvest that he's referring to is that of Christ-like character, that of freedom. Truly be free. And so I just ask you this morning, in your struggle with the flesh, have you, have you grown weary at all? Have you grown weary at all? Have you lowered your expectations with the flesh? Have you settled for the tug of war rather than for the victory? Don't grow weary in doing good, amen? Don't grow weary in doing good. But hang on and have a vision of the life that is really life a life that is free and not obligated to obey the commands of your flesh, but able to follow Jesus 
the way you're meant to follow Jesus. Would you stand for a moment with me? Would you bow your heads just for a moment before you're dismissed here? I want you just to bow your heads. and We're gonna get you out of here really soon. I just don't want you to pass this moment by. Every head bowed in here, I want your eyes closed just for a moment, right? Just to be clear, you're not dismissed yet. All right, just for a moment, bow your heads. And I want you just to be real between, between you and God right now. I want you just to have a, just a level of honesty. Just imagine like the spotlight of the Holy Spirit just sort of shining on your life and just exposing anything that needs to be exposed. And if you're here today and you would just say, Pastor Jordan, man, there are some stuff, there's some stuff in my life associated with my flesh that's just out of control. Like I, 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 am, I am held captive by the desires of my flesh. Like I need to let these things go. I've got to break free from this. I want to start living the life that is life. I want to actually be free. Can I just see your hand today as it pertains to the flesh? There's just some things that got to go. There's some things that got to get out, some things that got to go and never, ever, ever come back. And so, Father, right now I ask, I ask for you to just come, Holy Spirit, and just move in power in this place. Break every chain. Now, every person who is held captive by their flesh, every person who is is, is finding themselves just repeatedly, you know, doing certain things over and over and over again that they hate and that it isn't beneficial to their spirit. I ask for freedom in this room right now, oh God. Not a kind of freedom that, that would mirror that of this world, but the kind of freedom that you talk about. Freedom from the desires of our flesh or to be ruled by our flesh. And so Lord, I pray that people would walk out of this place changed, transformed, set free, never the same not walking in their flesh, but walking in their spirit, walking by the spirit, led by the spirit, feeding the spirit. And so God, I pray that that spirit man, that spirit woman would strengthen right now in this room under the sound of my voice, that if it's defeated, if it's knocked down, that that head would lift right now off the mat, that it would start to stand up once again, that it would push back and it would fight against the enemy of our soul, the flesh, it would start to win and win and win. I pray you'd set your people free in this place so that we can walk freely in the life that you have for us, oh God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen and amen.